listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. When I first started in this work of supporting people in grief, there were a few names in the field that came up over and over. You know when you're new to something and you're casting about for the words and ideas of other people, people who know way more than you do about what it is you're supposed to be doing? For me, one of those people was David Kessler. David is a renowned author, speaker, and retreat leader. He co-authored two books, On Grief and Grieving and Life Lessons, with another grief and loss icon, maybe you've heard of her, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. As with so many who are drawn to working with people in the midst of grief, David's professional path started with the personal. When he was 13, just edging into adolescence, he witnessed a mass shooting while his mother was dying in the ICU. As an adult, he raised two sons who had experienced a number of losses when they were very young. Then, in 2016, his youngest son, who was also named David, died at 21. It was this death that prompted David to write his newest book, Finding Meaning, The Sixth Stage of Grief, which, for the record listeners, is very hard to say. Try it. Sixth stage. Thankfully, in our conversation, David said it for me. David sat down with me at the Dougie Center a few hours after hosting a book signing for some of our community supporters. He's an eloquent, compelling speaker, and I found myself getting lost in his words and forgetting that I was supposed to be asking him questions. We talked about what it was like to be a grieving professional who was then suddenly thrown into the world of being a grieving parent. We examine more closely the original concept behind the stages of grief and how they've been wildly misconstrued and misused. And we also explore this idea of finding meaning. And listeners, don't worry. This is not about finding meaning in the fact that your person died or the tragedy of their death. It's really about finding meaning again in your own life and the lives of the people you care about. David, thank you so much for joining me for Grief Out Loud today. I'm so glad to be with you. Thank you for doing this. And we get to spend two times together today because we did a a talk for our book signing earlier this morning, and then here you are in the studio. I'm enjoying the day. It's great. You know, I've been thinking a lot about the different perspectives you have on grief. You know, so as 13, you became a grieving child, and then you adopted kids who were grieving. So then you became the parent to grieving children, and then your son died, and you became a grieving parent. And throughout many of of these experiences, you're a professional in the grief world. So how do you how do you hold all these different grief roles? Some days well, some days not so well. Um, <laughs> you know, it's been interesting how it's changed over the years. I will say, you know, we talk about the assumptive world in grief, and. I didn't realize I had made an assumption when I was that grief specialist and talking about my childhood grief. I had thought, my big griefs are behind me. I'm sure when I'll get to 80, friends will start dying. But the big grief was 
being in a mass shooting and my mother dying in my childhood, I mean, that's enough. I didn't think I would deal with being a bereaved parent. Um, so I think that that shook me up in a way that obviously, you know, would shake anyone up and devastate them. But it was, I was aware of that notion that, oh, you know, the grief doesn't necessarily isn't behind you. What, what made you think like it was behind <laughs> you? So, and, and with David's death, because you had been in the field for so long, how did your own, in your own experience of grief, how did what you knew or what you thought you knew about grief get challenged or confirmed? Well, it was interesting because I, I tried very hard to not be the grief expert in my own grief. And yet, there was another part of my mind that was monitoring it. I mean, there was a part of me that went, oh, yeah, these are the stages. They actually do, they do seem to happen. Oh, okay, you know, so I would go through that. Um, so there were moments that were validating around the work. There were other surprises. I mean, just the dip, the pain. I often said I wanted to write a note to every bereaved parent I had counseled, saying I had no idea how bad it was. Um, I watched my own son, my older son, dealing with the loss of his sibling and having that same feeling, oh my gosh, no idea. that We can't ever know anyone's pain, and I think I'm even more humbled in that. So that was certainly a depth that I hadn't, you know, thought about before. Yeah, I think about that for myself in, in this world and working in grief and sitting with grieving kids and grieving teens and grieving young adults. And I'm, I'm sort of aging out of the people I'm sitting with to think, right, right. oh, well, I respond they, w the way they are. And I sometimes wonder, like, well, I'll be like this person or will I be like that person or will it feel like this? And my sense is I can't, there's nothing I can do to be fully prepared. Like right. whatever happens is going to take me off guard. Right. There's also little things. There were little moments like, you know, we all talk about the worst things to say to people in grief. And I have that on my website and stuff. And we always talk about that. And it was different being hit with those things. I mean, I can remember one of the things that would get me is someone would go, I can't imagine what that's like. And I would kind of go, well, you don't have to. You can, like, ask me. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's sort of right here. Or acutely aware that when someone said, I can't imagine, oh, you left my grief. Now you're imagining what it would be like for you. So there was those kind of things. Um, to almost fully embody the things that we talk about as professionals and to be on the receiving end of them. To be the experiencer. Mm -hmm. And... As I mentioned today in the talk here at the, the Dougie Center, that to go to a grief group, I mean, I've been recommending grief groups for years. I swear by them to go to grief counseling. I swear by it. But to have to show up at one took so much courage. I just, I didn't, I didn't, I underestimated the resistance. And to just show up. And then as I, I you know, mentioned to sit there and, be the grieving dad, to not be the grief expert, to, to sit with my books three feet away and not go, that's me, but to sit there as the father who had to bury his child. That was challenging. And, 
and as a grieving parent, tell us a little bit about David. Uh, David had an amazing sense of humor. He, um, he had met a wonderful social worker the year before he died. He had a great girlfriend. It was tragic to see someone's life end at 21. Just so unexpected. The, the last chapter of the book, I made the last chapter of the book about him. I, I made sure I sort of attended to everyone else's concepts and losses. I didn't want the book to be just about my loss. And one of the things when he died, I just had this awareness of everything has changed. And that's sort of what I called that last chapter, like now everything has changed. You know, meaning is what I sought. I just thought about, really, I just accept that he's gone. That's it. That's my goal, acceptance. Well, that's not enough. There's got to be something more. And, you know, meaning was that cushion and that avenue that I found. So before we go a little bit more deeply into that idea Mm -hmm. of finding meaning, which is the title of your book, Finding Meaning, the Sixth Stage of Grief, let's back up a little bit. You mentioned the stages and, you know, working in the bereavement world for 17 years. People ask me about all the time, stages of grief, tell me about the stages of grief. And you worked really closely with the the originator of that concept, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And how do you talk about the stages of grief now in a more like, well, I don't want to say updated because I think it's more of the caring forth what Elizabeth Kubler-Ross really meant. It is caring forth her work. So, for example, one of the criticisms you hear of the stages is that they were about dying. They were never adapted for grief. And I'm like, oh five years of my life writing on grief and grieving with her. No, they were adapted. They were adapted in the book on grief and grieving. And on page one, it says they're not a map for grief. They're not linear. You don't follow them. They actually reflect where you are. So it's interesting to people who have read the book, they get it. To people who have just heard five easy steps in the media to deal with grief, You know, and there's a lot of professionals that go, you know, and really criticize it. And the reality is they've been so misinterpreted from misinterpreted from the way she originated them and we adapted them. Um, They're not you end one, you begin the other. For people who are going into the unknown of grief. The idea that there's this rough scaffolding out there, that there's sort of some predictability, helps lessen it for them and brings them some comfort. But I can tell you, at Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's bedside, a clinician would come in and would go, Elizabeth, I need you to help with a case. And they would go back and give us 20 minutes history of this case. And we were enthralled, Elizabeth and I, like, what's the question going to be? And then at the end, the clinician would go, okay, what stage are they in? And Elizabeth would go, forget the stages, just meet them where they are. And we, we, we forget that this woman gave hundreds of lectures, has written many, many books. I think, you know, over a half a million words are in her books and countless numbers of books all around the world. And we reduce her work to five words? You've sort of missed it, you know? And writing this new book was a chance to go back and remind everyone 
that the stages are not a map. That's not how they were intended to not misinterpret that. And Elizabeth was a messy, organic, rule-breaking woman who would hate the idea that, you know, people have neatened up the stages into five easy steps for grief. Yeah, especially the idea that it might be a ladder of some sort. A ladder, sequential, and start one. I mean, I just think about, we were talking about my own son's death. I'm constantly in the state of trying to accept it. I move into angry about it. And how can I find meaning in it? I mean, I'm doing a number of them all the time. Yeah, I I think about them more as confirmation points or validation points when someone wakes up and is like, what is this rage? Like, this is a new aspect of my grief I haven't felt before. And to be able to look out into the world and say, oh, anger is something that happens for people in grief. Or I walked in the door today and my dad's been dead for 20 years, but there was just that moment of opening the door, will he be there this time? Right. And the bargaining, the regrets, the what-ifs, the if-onlys, the magical thinking, I mean, all that's in there. So the, I don't know if you would call it a new stage of grief, because I'm sure this has been happening for people for centuries. Right, right. Meaning is not new. (laughs) I just sort of felt like it was where I wanted to take this. And I was just so grateful that the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross family and foundation allowed me to add a stage to her iconic stages. And so when you think about finding meaning as a probably ever-moving, ever-evolving process, what differentiates it from some of the more simplistic pieces of like, well, just look on the bright side or stay positive? I wanted, that's such a great question. I really wanted to uh, make sure people did not do that, that this is not pouring pink paint on it or, you know, let's find the silver lining and isn't it great they died because you learned something. I mean, one of the things I make clear is your your loss is not a test. It's not a blessing. It's not there for you to learn something. Loss happens in life. Meaning is what we can make happen. And I think when people hear sometimes about making meaning in that sixth stage, they think, how can there be meaning in a tragic death? They're right. There isn't meaning in the death. But meaning is what we can do after. Meaning could be, how can you change the world so that particular death doesn't happen to other people? You can think about the qualities that your loved one had. How can they live on in you? You know, we often talk about, you'll hear someone go, a part of me died when they died. And I'll go, I get that. And a part of you and a part of them lives on in you. How can you nurture that? If your mother worked her way through school as a waitress, and because she knew how hard that was, she was a generous tipper. Can you carry that on and be a generous tipper? You know, how can you take those good qualities? It also can just be those meaningful moments that we look back with our loved one who died. We also can get so focused on their moment of death. How can we also not take away that moment, but also encompass the other moments of their life? I don't want my son to be just defined by his death. I want it to also him be defined by his life and the impact on the world that he can have. As you were talking, I get this image of setting up a, a gallery exhibition 
And if the only painting on the wall is the painting of the moment of death right. or the trauma of getting the news or finding the body, and that through this process of finding meaning, maybe we hang other paintings on the wall so that it becomes one in a gallery showcase of this person's life. Correct, correct. And sometimes even when I work with people, they will be stuck on that image, the image of them in the ICU or the morgue or whatever horrific thing they saw. I'll actually talk to them about, I mean, there's a time early on you want to help them process, but there's a time that it can just be the image that they have of their loved one. And I'll actually talk to them about printing out some pictures to have around them of the other moments of their lives. That was just the worst, but there were others. And like I say, I'm not taking the bad away or pouring pink paint. I'm just helping us find balance in this. And you mentioned writing the book, working with people. What are some other examples of how you're finding meaning in your experience of David's death? Well, one of the things that has been a strange thing I did not see coming is writing the book was very therapeutic for me, was very helpful. And I remember sitting there when I finished the book and I just was in tears. And I remember I thought, I hope this book helps other people the way it helped me. But being on this tour and doing 30 cities in three countries, I didn't really think about it. I, you know, you just, you're giving birth to a book and about us, my son was in it and I want to give it a, a, an amazing launch. So I said yes to everything. Everything, listeners, he's going everywhere for the everywhere, next six yeah, months. Right, three countries, <laughs> 30, 30 cities, it's crazy. There were moments where like the publisher, Simon & Schuster, would call me and go, oh my gosh, you've got a half page in the New York Times. And I would have this moment of going, yay, oh, and my son is still dead. And I had to think about how do I hold success of a book in the loss of a child? How do I hold these things together when every good moment about the book is connected to his death? I thought about, you know, we often think we're really unique in our loss, and we are unique in a million ways. But I thought about, oh my gosh, how many people have I counseled that they had to hold, they got insurance money from their husband dying, and their husband was dead. Or there was an amazing law passed that made sure no one will ever get killed the way their child or their loved one got killed, and yet they're... So it's the holding of these two things and the way I personally found to hold it. Because it's interesting, I had to sit with, what's my meaning in this? I mean, I wrote a whole book, but after I wrote the book, I did the first retreat on it. And after the, during the retreat, I'm like, what's my meaning? Now that I'm on this tour and it's going, I, I have to figure that out for me. And as I was really sitting with that, I remember David in kindergarten. And in kindergarten, they gave out awards. And I remember how silly I thought it was. They gave out award to every kid in kindergarten. And David got the award for most likely to become a caregiver or helper. He never got to be a helper in life. He's getting to help now. That's my meaning. It makes me wonder, too, of 
you know, your mom died when you were 13 and finding meaning is, it's a pretty abstract concept. Right. Most kids and teens might struggle with something a little bit, you know, outside the realm of concrete thinking. Right. Do you have suggestions for how people might talk with kids and teens about finding meaning or the ways like maybe retrospectively looking back that you were finding meaning in your mom's death? I think it is. We, we, we often see children talking about that person who died. And I think there's something about if you can say, you know, what did you love about them? What made them the coolest person? Or what made your friend this or your brother that? Or what did you love about them? And to talk about that part can live on in you. And there's so much sadness around them dying. And death is permanent. It's physical. That's so tragic. And death does not have the power to take away your memories of them. Death doesn't have the power to take away your love. So it comes back to that, how do we hold the sadness and this amazing quality we got from them or this love that will be ours forever? Or kids' other favorite question, what's the one thing the person who died did that really bugged you? Right, <laughs> right. And, and to also, right, to help them know that person wasn't perfect. You know, we've all had those experiences of going to funerals. I remember it was really funny. A woman said to me, she went to her husband's funeral and her clergy wasn't there. Someone filled in and she said, you know, it was her Frank's husband's funeral. And she said, it was a lovely funeral. It wasn't Frank's, but it was lovely. (laughs) You know, when we just sort of talk about all these good qualities and we don't sort of, you know, when you come away from a funeral that touches you, it was often authentic. It mentioned the good and it mentioned the bad. Yeah, like it captured the full spectrum of full who that spectrum, person was. Right, and that's what we have to do in grief. And with your with your mom, with your mother's death, how is the meaning feel the same or different than the meaning you found in other losses? It's fascinating to me to look at our narrative and our story over the years. I can remember when I was young, there was that sense of wanting to fit in. And I was very much like, yeah, my mother died. It was no big deal. And there was a shooting. I mean, it happens to everyone. These things happen, right? And then this happened. And, and I was very much like downplay it. Nothing big, nothing unusual. And then as I went through the years, I had to, no, this was big. And whether it was big or not to someone else, this was big to me. Mm. And I, you know, I think we have to go back as we get older and things to re-grieve things and revisit them. And I... I had to grieve it in a different way as I got older and and realized these were big events to me and these were heartbreaking events and it wasn't like, yeah, no big deal. Um, and then to think about it, you know, it went from no big deal to then I was a victim of it. And, you know, I felt like a very victim. I am, why did this happen to me as I sort of grieved it in some ways? And uh, in time, it became a story of triumph and how I survived it. So I think for me, it's interesting to see how the story changed from childhood. And of course, there were moments like kids have, where I thought there was something I did wrong. I didn't take on I caused a shooting, but I did take on, wow, did she die because of this or because of that I did or whatever it was. Yeah, if only I'd been able to get in to see her one more time, or if only I had done my homework faster, or 
We also have to go back, like I'll tell you something, you know, personal I had to deal with is my mother, she had kidney issues. She had to be on a low salt diet. She asked me to make her sandwich. And I can remember after she was gone, or maybe it was when she was in the hospital, someone going, oh my gosh, that's the worst thing to give someone on, you know, who has kidney failure and you shouldn't have given her that. And of course I took that on like, oh my gosh, did I have a part to play in her illness? It wasn't until I could go back and process this with other people and talk about as an adult that I could go, wait a minute, why is there salami in our house to begin with? And I'm a 12-year-old boy, and why, why is it on me to understand a low-salt diet? Like, wasn't that about the adults in the house? Mm-hmm. But as a child, you just like, oh, I guess that is my fault. And we take so much fault on, as you know. Yeah, and I, that idea of the fault that we make up ourselves, or maybe we pick up from someone else, consciously, unconsciously. Or in their anger they throw at us that we take on. And then in your book, you write about pain and suffering. Right. And can you talk a little bit about that? And why is it so important to disentangle those two? So I talk about pain from loss is inevitable. Suffering is optional. Uh, I always joke about anyone who's Jewish or Catholic, I just confuse them because they were taught pain (laughs) is suffering. But pain to me is pure grief. It is the pain of that person dying. Suffering is what our mind does. Annie Lamont has a wonderful line. She talks about that, like, my mind is like a bad neighborhood. I never want to go into alone. (laughs) Our mind, we would hope, would be so kind and compassionate to us in grief. And yet many times it can be cruel. So the suffering is our mind commenting on you did that, or you brought it about, or it's partly your fault, or why did you do that, or, you know, you're having a pity party, or just get over it. Our mind doesn't become our best friend. So I can't ever take away anyone's pain. I mean, the pain of a loved one dying, a parent, a sibling, a child, I can't take that away. But I can help you with the suffering to help you experience the pure grief, the pure loss. And what a great example you gave of the the suffering of the story of, I made my mom the sandwich. I contributed to her death. Yeah, uh, right. And of course, I lived with that for many years. That was my suffering. The other suffering I had around my mother is I am a a, a big believer in writing when it comes to grief and loss and trauma and do writing classes. And because it was so powerful to me. One of the things I did when I got older, I was in my 30s by the time I did this. We all know our own story. I wrote everyone else's story. I wrote my father's story. I thought my father was so judgmental in my grief and never talked about it. What was it like for him to have his wife dying, not be able to afford a hotel for him and his son to stay in, to have to care for him? Then I wrote about my mother And as I mentioned, if you had saw me in my 20s, 30s, I had a chip about, you know, I had abandonment issues, very victimized. When I wrote my mother's story on the piece of paper for the first time I saw, my mother died. She did not abandon me. That's what a child, that's at least what my mind made up, that my mother had abandoned me. No, that's what our mind does to us at a young age sometimes. My mother died. 
but yet I had lived a life as being abandoned for many years. And and the imagining, too, that maybe 20 people when you were a child could have said, your mom didn't abandon you, she died. But it wouldn't have had the same resonance until you came to that conclusion on your own. Right. And unfortunately, I didn't have anyone doing that. So <laughs> wish I would have, but yes, <laughs> it, you're helped. right. It may have not. Well, and that's the other thing I tell people. You know, I see parents now who are so frantic to get their kids through the grieving process, and they just want them to be done and get back to a normal life. Well, that is their life now. And they're not going to get back to that life. And, you know, no one could have taken me to one meeting with a therapist when I was 13 and make it no more. It just was my life. So, you know, I think parents giving children support and resources is so important. But the same way, it's now your destiny to deal with this loss. It's your kids also. You can't get them out of grief. You can only give them support. Although I love the idea if a, if a kiddo could just come to one therapy session and wouldn't be done be with great? their, we'd be like, we'd be making a lot of money. That'd be great. That'd be great. <laughs> I would, I would have taken that class, still would take that class. You talked about that idea of feeling like a victim. And also in your book, you talk about this idea of people being or feeling stuck in their grief. And I know that that's a phrasing that sometimes can feel a little pejorative or judgmental towards people who are in grief, and they might either use it against themselves, like I'm so stuck, or someone might say it to them, and it can come across as just get over it. When you talk about someone feeling stuck or being stuck, how do you explain that to people? I talk about it stuck is usually how people self-describe. Grief is ever flowing or ever moving. There's times when we feel like we're just stuck in it. And first of all, I remind people, there's no wrong way to do this. There's just, you know, you're really not doing it wrong. But grief is one of those things that's strange that if you begin to self-judge your grief or other people judge your grief, it does get in the way of healthy grieving. Oh, I'm doing it wrong. And I think we need someone to tell us, no, you're not doing it wrong. There's no getting over it in three days or a week. In fact, there's no getting over it. You're going to learn to live with it. So I think it's helping people understand they're not broken. They're in grief. And if you are, quote, stuck in it, you might just be having a period of stabilizing where you are. And that can be okay, too. So I certainly don't mean it in any punitive way. I love the, the idea of it being a fluid experience and that right. sometimes when water is flowing, it bumps up against a boulder and it has to figure out how to get around that boulder and that those can be those times when I just feel super stuck in my grief. It's like, maybe there's a big boulder. <laughs> the right. grief is trying to figure out how to go around it. And I use the imagery, or imagery, I put it in the book, but the editor took it out, of a river of grief that... You know, the river of grief will take us to our healing. Branches get in the way, big ones, small ones. We have to get, you know, branches. A big branch can slow the river down for a few minutes. But hopefully it begins to move it at some point. A big branch can be the complicators of grief. So I use that imagery to sort of help people visualize complicated grief. That You just got to figure out what that is and get your grief moving again. Um 
But to note, the river of grief will take us to our healing. It's society that goes, fight the river, get out of the river in three days. Why are you still in the river after a year? You know, I tried in the book to bust the one-year myth that we're done with grief in a year. Yeah, especially when so many people say, ooh, year two? Somehow that seems even harder than year one. Nobody told me about that. Right. So, David, as we get towards the end of our conversation today, what would you most want David to know, your son David, to know about your life now? Hmm. I would want him to know that I miss him. I have a life that I'm trying to honor him. I hope to do right by his loss. I also hope to have a life that he would want for me. You know, I picture him. There's a disloyalty factor. We think to continue to live would be disloyal to the person who died. And I know David, and I know if I live another 30 years and I meet him in the afterlife and he's not aware of what went on, I know he might say something like, wow, so what'd you do with those other 30 years? I mean, wasn't Earth amazing? Was it like the sky that was ever-changing? What about the food? Wasn't the food great? And if I said to him, I shut down after you died. Life was over then. I know he'd be like, no, no, not completely, right? I mean, you grieve me, but you still went. I mean, he would find it a tragedy if I didn't continue to live. And I want to continue to live in his honor and live a life that he would be proud of. And if he's along for the ride and seeing what I'm doing now, I hope he's enjoying it. And this is tough work. You know, I'm reminded, the grief expert who's now a person in grief, I'm reminded of how tough it is. That's why with the book, I did a companion class for everyone who gets the book anywhere. They can find that at sixstage.com or at my website, completely free. This is work. This takes a lot of love and a lot of self-care. And I'm hoping that David gets to help a lot of people through this book with me. Well, I'm so appreciative of your time today, of the book that you've created, knowing that this will be supporting so many thousands of people who are looking for not necessarily a framework, but they, well, they kind of are looking for a map. And I really appreciate that your book gives not an exact GPS rendition, but some guideposts along the way. Absolutely. Thank you for helping to get the word out about it. So if listeners out there want to connect more with you, you mentioned one website. Is there any other way that they should be reaching out? Sure, at grief.com, G-R-I-E-F.com. If the companion class is at six stage, S-I-X-T-H, stage, S-T-A-G-E.com. I'm on Facebook. Look for me under I am David Kessler, under pages or Instagram or Twitter or Pinterest, all those ways. I'd love to connect with people. And as you mentioned, I'm doing 30 cities. I hope to meet people in person and see them in those retreats or lectures. Australia, the UK, I'll see you there. (laughs) Well, thank you again, David. I wish you so well with your travels. Thank you. 
And listeners out there, I put all that in the show notes. So don't try to scribble it down right now. You can just click on all the links. And we appreciate you being out there, tuning in, listening to these shows, uh, sharing them with your friends and family. If you would like to connect with me, you can reach out at help at Dougie.org. I love to hear from listeners. Like, What does the show mean to you? What are the episodes that have called to you the most? What am I not talking about that you want me to be talking about? And if you feel like you want to support the show in a, in a more concrete way, uh, please feel free to donate any amount you're called to. You can go to dougy.org forward slash grief out loud and just click the big blue donate button. Thanks for listening and hope you'll join us again next time.